0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. You will notice that things are going to sound a little bit different this week. Mitch is in Montana with some CBF friends, and so Starlet and I are taking over. I'm Reverend Kendall Ray Rothus, and my latest book is just out. By Queendom Come, Breaking Free from the Patriarchy to Save Your Soul. Thy Queendom Come is a feminist reimagining of the kingdom of God. Hierarchy is replaced with a reign of love. Women's voices and stories are valued. Reverence for the divine feminine reemerges from the ashes of its martyrdom. Order your copy of Thy Queendom Come wherever books are sold. Hey, Starlet. Welcome to the show.
1: I want to drop my voice. I want to sound like, hi, welcome. I want to be like, (laughs) thank you so much for having me.
0: We are so glad that you are here. I'm thankful that you jumped on to introduce uh, Good Faith Weekly with me this week. I've never done it alone. Mitch has never done it alone. And so this is just a little bit of a different look and feel this week.
1: So I'm being kind of like a good neighbor. Hey, can we borrow? Can we borrow?
0: (laughs) Yes, a cup of sugar. A co speaker. (laughs) (laughs) A co speaker. Exactly. So this week, what is going to happen is we have a guest host, Dr. Lane Scales, who our listeners will be familiar with. She's from Baylor University, um, and we'll tell you a little bit more about her interview later. But before we kick it to Dr. Scales, Starlet, you wrote an incredible piece for us at Good Faith Media this week about, at the risk of sounding like Mr. Rogers, being a good neighbor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And bears repeating. You wrote a song about it. I want to hear it yeah. go. Oh, it's important. I think it bears in mind, it, it, it always strikes me how simple our religion is around how we practice love and how we embody Christ-likeness, that you just, you're supposed to be a good neighbor, and we can't seem to get that, get that right, no, no matter not. the administration, no, no matter the denomination, no matter the day of the week, we seem to come up short when it comes to that, um, so yeah, that, that, it bears repeating, it's, it's worth writing about time and time again um, until we get it right.
0: One thing that I really appreciated about your article is that it looked at the broad description of the word neighbor, so other countries, other people groups, um, but then you also talked about what that means on a micro level. So tell us a little bit about where where you were coming from when you wrote that piece.
1: So uh, it, it, September 28th was National Good Neighbor Day, and so I started thinking about the ways in which our bodies create borders uh, in light of what, what's happening on our borders uh, and with Haitian uh, migrants who are trying to make their way here for a better life. And I thought it, I thought it was important for us to look again at ourselves and the ways in which uh, we create boundaries that restrict persons from expressing and embodying their full humanity. Uh, and the picture uh, with whips and the US Border Patrol on horseback uh, is reminiscent of American slavery. And so I wanted us to look at that picture again and, and to remember that some pictures are worth more than a thousand words. In fact, they're 400 years old. And so they go back much longer and require more uh, conversation. And if we keep seeing these images, what are we, what are we not saying? Because history continues to repeat itself. Um, so something, we haven't said something right. We haven't, we haven't clarified our language because we keep getting these snapshots that remind us that we're not as far removed um, from oppression of any kind.
0: No, no, we're yeah. really, but it's, it's hard to look at. It's hard to look at. Yeah, but you can't look
1: away. No. Uh, You can't put your head in the sand. We have to be a good neighbor. Watch out for our neighbor, uh, no matter how far away that neighbor is. It's not about just the neighbor across the street uh, or down the road or down the block or next door to you. It's about the neighbor uh, across the sea, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: across the river. Got to look out for everybody. If the body of Christ is to be global, uh, then we have to count everyone as neighbor, um, and his body belongs everywhere. Everywhere that it, that that our sister or brother, our sibling, does not belong, uh, we're supposed to come in and step in and remind people that you do belong. Uh, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell in it. So if we are here, it is our space, our sacred space, uh, to claim. And sometimes people need to be reminded of that. We are not owners of the earth; we are stewards of it. Oh man! Um, so yes. share the land. Yes, share the land share the yeah. wealth and, uh, and take down some of these borders this nonsense
0: uh, and that's chopping a very up
1: that doesn't belong to you
0: it's such a colonial concept too you know it's <laughs> something that our our native brothers and sisters uh, really i feel like have a stronger hold on and something that i hadn't really ever known as much about until i came uh, to north haven the church that i go to and mitch originally was our pastor and he speaks um When a lot of times when he preaches, he preaches from the same faith background that I grew up in, but with a Creek accent. And when I say accent, what I mean is the, the culture that he grew up in and being good stewards of the earth means sharing and caring, not just, not just for the earth, but for the people who are on it. And that was a concept that just blew my little white brain. You know, I just, I I didn't understand it.
1: It Isn't it interesting? Yeah, colonizers have been on, have been here in this space for five hundred years, and have managed to ruin just about everything. And indigenous people were here thousands of years, and nothing was wrong with it. That is the force. That is the wickedness of colonization. Speaking of indigenous people, we remember them today. Um, persons yes. are wearing orange uh, to remember the children who were murdered and discovered buried in the ground. Uh, thank God for their blood crying out. We remember them today. More than six thousand five hundred little people. Uh, so I I, I I lament, I mourn, I weep with them, that um, their bodies cry out, scream out, shout it out until it shakes us, because that's an image we can't yeah. just skip over, um, no matter uh, if it falls off the news cycle or not, we have to, we have to keep talking about these things. We do, we absolutely
0: do. So we're clear on it. We do, and that's a part of being a good neighbor, is looking and knowing the history and not color c- color coding it and not sugar it yeah really yeah. looking at that history
1: yeah it's difficult James Baldwin talks about that you know history is difficult to face but it must be faced if you're going to change history you have to face it you can't look away from it uh, no matter the capitalistic gains that are associated with it um, this stuff counts we're going to be good neighbors we have to claim everybody mm-hmm.
0: so it's sort of sort of interesting that you wrote the article that you did without knowing who our guest interview was going to be today because it really all ties together Um, and Dr. Scales is going to be talking with a couple of people who Mm -hmm. are taking Mm -hmm. a look Mm -hmm. at their personal history and at their organization's history as well
1: that's right that's the power of story Um, that's a power of self-examination that's a practice of discipleship that's truth-telling, t- that's courageous truth-telling. And we don't see enough of it, um, telling the truth and shaming the devils mm-hmm. that pay us to keep quiet. This is all about capitalism. You know. So you wanna maintain a, p- a particular picture, put on a happy face, but we can't take commercial breaks from this kind of work. We have to keep talking about it, keep digging it up, keep bringing it up. Um, if not, those bodies will continue to cry out. There's a lot we have buried. And so it's time to loosen, loosen up around conversations on race and white supremacy and uh, colonizing identities. We have to, we gotta loosen up. Uh, that stuff has quite a grip on us, Christians and otherwise. Yeah, be a good neighbor, people, be a good neighbor. But we can't be a good neighbor if we're lying to ourselves about we ha- what we have and don't have. And some of us don't have the capacity to be a good neighbor because we're not good to ourselves we're not good to ourselves because we don't don't know ourselves. You know how many people have found out they're living with a stranger? And they're talking about themselves who are stuck in a house and keep running into themselves and don't want to be bothered with themselves. And we're expecting those same people to identify with a stranger. This work is too hard. It's too hard for some people. But worth worth it. Absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it this freeing work, this liberating work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. So no, listeners, be, be, good, be good to your neighbors, but you, at first have to, you first have to be good to you. You have to take care of you. You have to love on you, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, and then you can reach out and share from that, that abundance, that capacity. Um, but this, this self-love, that, that soul work,
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: healing work. If we're gonna talk about healing community, we've got to heal our history.
0: Yeah. And there's yeah. enough. There's enough. There's an abundance yes. of good, of love, yes. of grace.
3: You yes. don't
0: have to hog it. You don't Come have to. Come on and it. preach. You don't have to store it up for yourself. It, that's not that's how right. any of this works. That's right. Yeah. That's not the gospel. No.
1: That's the good news of capitalism that mm. if you pay enough, we'll give you enough. That nobody has enough. That we all have to scramble and scrape. There's not enough identity. There's not enough belonging. There's not enough resources. There's not enough of anything, right? That's the lie of capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's the lie of empire. That's Caesar. That's not yeah. Jesus. Yep. That's Caesar. Let's Dang, leave it. Let's leave off. it
0: there. Let's give yeah. it to him and yeah. leave it
1: there. Yeah. 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 Ah, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Mitch, if you're listening, sir. <laughs> I think you got another preacher, <laughs> <laughs> Reverend Doctor Autumn Locken is coming.
0: Well, Starlet Cash I, after now, Cash. That's after now. R- that's right. I'm so thankful <laughs> <that> you <laughs> Hopped on with me and talked. And if you haven't had a chance to read Starlet's article about being a neighbor, uh, go back to September twenty eighth when we ran that on our website. It's worth a read. It's worth a share. Um, and I'm I'm saving it to reread because it's just a good reminder. There's a lot of truth there. He's always kind to me.
4: <laughs> I appreciate it, him. Dr. Lane Scales, our guest host, talks with Dr. Blake Burleson and Dr. Bert Burleson about Baylor University's recent examination of its slaveholding founders and leaders. The Burlesons were surprised to learn in the process that their ancestor, twice president of Baylor University, was a promoter of the lost cause. This is the idea that God was on the side of the South and that white supremacy was divinely ordained Baylor, along with other Christian universities, has had to face these hard truths about their founding. How do Christians respond in good faith to these revelations? You will want to hear this interview, so stay tuned. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. It's season two, and we're still talking about that taboo trinity: race, religion. Politics. This season of the Raceless Gospel has eight episodes, eight podcast church services. The doors of this church are open, and we're going to talk about the sticks and stones we carry faithfully that break the skin and bones of Christ's body. And on each episode, we're joined by those who bring perspective and insight as to how we set these broken bones and perhaps make things right. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, eight episodes. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we discuss the church in North America's bodywork. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
2: Good afternoon. I am here with Blake and Bert Burleson. Of Baylor University, a lot of bees there. Um, and uh, I'll just introduce them both. Blake Burleson is Associate Dean in the College of Arts and Sciences here at Baylor, also teaches religion and is an ordained minister. And Bert is our University Chaplain, has been so for about 14 years now and uh, also an ordained minister and was serving in a church uh, here in Waco uh, when he was called to come to this work. And we have known each other for many years here in our uh, work at Baylor. Blake, I knew first because we were associate deans together, and um, I remember uh, saying to you at the time when Bert came on what a dream it was to be in the same workplace as your beloved sibling and i have a sister that i love dearly and she's a professor but not at baylor so i've envied that and um we um uh, we know you have a special uh situation being able to work here with your family and your family's such an important part of of baylor history so we're here to talk about uh your ancestor rufus um, and uh, I've dropped by your office before, Blake, and I've seen this very striking painting of two men standing in a river, and one man is being baptized. And you shared with me that this is Uncle Rufus right. uh, baptizing <laughs> Sam Houston.
3: Yeah, it's a great painting, and I—it's it, the original is in my office. And Bert has a copy of it in his office. so I, I tried to get it in my <laughs> office because I thought I'm the chaplain. Yeah. The yeah, yeah, but, it's a pastoral thing. Yeah, i But no. I teach in the religion <laughs> department, so, you know, I think okay. I should have it. But anyway, the, you know, I think, I, Lane, I probably told you that the story is that when uh, Rufus baptized Sam, he brought him up out of the waters and said, Sam, your sins are washed away. And Sam said, well, I feel sorry for the fish downstream. (laughs) (laughs)
4: That's
3: pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So we want to talk uh, a little bit more today about uh, Rufus and the recent controversy Mm -hmm. that's come up at Baylor. He was twice president of Baylor and, um, um, uh, I've looked at some of his papers in the Texas collection and seen all the wonderful things he did for Baylor as a president. But um, we had a surprise this year that came out of uh, a special commission to look into Baylor's past. Can you tell us a little bit about that commission and what's found?
5: The commission was put together after George Floyd's. Uh, death, and that was happening, of course, across the nation, with uh, many, many universities, maybe a great majority in the South, especially. And uh, they were doing their work, and we were curious about where that might go. and And they invited us, Blake and I, as well as another colleague, uh, because of our connections to Rufus Burleson, uh, to come hear what they had found out. And uh, and, and that was a hard day. All right. Or it's because we hadn't necessarily, uh, oddly, and I'm going this further later, we hadn't necessarily anticipated that. Yeah, it,
3: maybe we should have. Uh, Absolutely. We, we, we should have, yeah. right? Yeah. So the, um, I guess my hope, and maybe it's just my re- revisioning or re- imagining history, was that because Rufus had baptized Sam Houston, who was against the Civil War, that maybe Rufus would have been against the Civil War, at least, you know, seeing the light at some point. And then the other thing is, after the Civil War, uh, Rufus raised money for Bishop College, which is an African-American college. So that gave me hope that, you know, he... He was uh, maybe involved in Reconstruction.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And and what we found out was the opposite. Yeah, sort of the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
5: tell us specifically what was found. My sort of a summary of it would be that he used his significant influence. You might, there probably was not a more influential Texas Baptist for almost five decades than Rufus. And he used his pulpit. And uh, I mean that with quotation marks, but also literally uh, to not only support, but sort of spread the the lost cause kind of way narrative and uh, reinforce that over and again. And so rather than being someone who was trying to nurture Reconstruction, Jim Crow was uh, the kind of thing he was doing. And and you know both of us would have known that it would have been really really rare for a a Southern Baptist preacher in the South to have stood up against all of this in fact there were a few who did and I think we heard this in one of the recent lectures here Uh, but uh, there were a few who did and when they did they were maybe uh, in jeopardy of their lives I mean it was that kind of situation Uh, so it, it, it it it's not something we assumed that he would be doing that like every
3: other Southern Baptist pastor in the South was doing. And we, we didn't know he had owned a slave. The slave's name was Elias, so so we didn't know that. I didn't—actually, I imagined that he did not own, own slaves, but he did own a slave. And then he, once the um, the Civil War became— a parent, uh, he rallied the troops, so to speak. He, he uh, uh, asked Baylor students to join the fight. And then he was a, a chaplain in one of the Texas regiments in the Civil War. So, And you can read some of what he had to say about this. And it's, you know, it's embarrassing. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, that he, he's sort of on God's side that the South is on God's side right. against the, the evil North. And uh, so that, that, when we're talking about surprise, so there was a surprise. And then I was surprised myself at the sadness that this brought. I, you know, I mean, it's a long time ago, but still there was a sadness to it.
2: Sure. And I'm, I'm hearing you talk about, you know, what you imagined he thought or what you hoped you would find. And I can... I can hear, um, yeah, the the disappointment in mm-hmm. uh, a person that was yeah. a hero. I mean, tell tell us a little bit about from your childhood. What was it like to be a Burleson connected to this man?
5: Well. Uh, he- uh, one of the things I'm just aware of even before you get to Rufus and Baylor and all that is that we were Texans and this Aww. was a source of identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we, we hear about the Six Flags over Texas and all this kinds of even went went to Six Flags over
3: Texas. <laughs> but uh, there was there was a sense of that's man, that's a part of who we are. And, and one, then one of those flags was the Confederate yeah, flag at that time. Yeah. which was the 60s, right? Yeah. It went, and and uh, it was a
5: narrative we would hear, um, both from our, our father and our grandfather in particular. And then somewhere along the way, uh, we, we realized that the Burlesons had had a significant part sort of in uh, the, the frontier days. And uh, they were a part of the, the, the battle with uh, Mexico. Mexico and served with Sam Houston, uh, and that Edward Burleson, who would have been Rufus's uncle, was the first vice president of the Republic of Texas. So you start hearing these things. It's an interesting way uh, that uh, just strengthens a sense of narrative about your life.
3: So you, you and I are seventh generation Texans, so... We trace it back to uh, Captain James Burleson and Elizabeth Shipman, his wife, who were part of Austin's colony. And uh, so, uh, Rufus Burleson's grandfather was Captain James Burleson, and his grandmother was Elizabeth. And and you and I are directly related to to James Burleson. So um, we. <laughs> so it goes, you know that. Um, is a part of our of our story in the distant past, but in the more recent past, I mean, when I was a freshman at Baylor, living in Martin Hall, and you, you two years later were a freshman in Penland. As we walk across the campus every day, we walk by a Rufus Burleson's mm-hmm. statue, mm-hmm. and and we we're connected to it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
5: it was our yeah. family
3: that yeah. did this, and and now. <clears throat> I can see his statue from my, my office and, and you basically can. You might have to ben, bend your bend my neck a little bit. And uh he holds a Bible and I just finished uh this spring teaching Christian scriptures to sixty students and you just finished the spring in which you opened your Bible in uh-huh. chapel, uh-huh. the same Bible that, that he holds. Yes. So that yeah. <laughs> that that icon is is every day in our in our story.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, speaking of that statue, what did the commission decide uh, about what, once it learned about his connection with uh, this lost cause ideology?
5: If I'm remembering remembering it right, their decision was to recommend. So okay. it's about recommendations okay. that, because of the significance of of the quadrangle as a place through the ages that Baylor students and others have gathered, they they wanted to think through that and perhaps rename it and move the statue and replace the statue with something else. That's, and I'm thinking Baylor leadership is, you know, going to head in that direction, but but I don't know that we've heard a final decision on that.
2: And I remember being surprised um, because we have Founders Mall, where our founders, including Judge Baylor, are. And then the Burleson Quadrangle is not the, you know, central founder's place, but he uh, you know, as you say, that statue has held a prominent place. Um, In the report, I think what they said was um, that that one was uh, a, a more uh, egregious, even though all of them had been slow, uh, had been slaveholders, slave that um, his promotion of white supremacy was considered more egregious, and that's why that statue was being moved.
5: He had a different role after the Confederacy died, right? Than the others, I don't know, I even know how I think. Judge Baylor only lived a few more years after that. Mm -hmm. So he had four more decades of leadership.
3: Yeah, so we don't know if that statue will be removed, but that was the recommendation. Mm -hmm. Um, Every every statue of every human being in which you're, you know, admiring their work uh, probably has... Issues now. This one has a serious issue, <laughs> and it's the issue of slavery and and uh, the injustices after the Civil War. That that doesn't mean you know from from my point of view. I'm not trying to demonize anybody, and and I'm not trying to uh, you know wash away anything that Rufus Burleson did because he did many things that are. That we can admire. Um, in fact, he, he's he's ambiguous in certain ways. For example, uh, he he wrote negatively about slavery before the Civil War. He he wrote, in a sense, against it. It's a not a good thing. At the same time, he's owning a slave. Uh, he once was. Uh, he once said that. Um, when we get to heaven, their uh, color will make no difference. Um, He helped establish the first African-American Baptist church in Waco. That might sound like a really positive thing that he did, but the the members of that African-American Baptist church had been slaves who were a member of First Baptist Church. And once they were freed, He helped them separate as a way of segregating Baptist churches.
5: And there was some
3: uh,
5: awareness by those on the commission that his thinking around education wasn't just that they might be full citizens in, in our country in the future, but that they would go home. This is what we've been told, anyway. To, to Africa, yeah, to yeah. Sort, of, sort of Christianize uh, Africa—that that was the purpose of educating uh, the African Americans who were among us. Uh, so there, it, it does. Uh, there's a kind of confusion. For us as we read about things that he was trying to get education for everyone public schools
3: let's do that everyone and yet then we hear this so yeah so he rode all over Texas raising money for public education for white black everybody Mm -hmm. so you have that that's a fact and and yet uh, as Bert said he also preached about them, the, 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 Af- the African-Americans needed, needed to return to Africa.
2: Yeah, and so, and I can hear you with all of these ambiguities. I mean, this is really like a microcosm of what's happening all over the nation with families, right? As families learn more, our universities are, Baylor's not the only one. In fact, we're one of the later ones looking into, you know, as, as other Baptist universities have done, uh, Furman, Wake Forest to find out you know, about their founders and their, uh, and their ancestors so it's a, it's a lot to wrestle with. You guys did something that I think was really an interesting approach to, to wrestle with some of what you were experiencing which is you wrote a letter um, to your Uncle Rufus and um, you published it in our local paper the Waco Tribune Herald and um, I loved reading that letter because, of course, I had been wondering as people who uh, who know you and wondering about how are the Burleson brothers, you know, taking all this in and dealing with it. And, and you told us um, you you first talked about the many accomplishments. As you say, this is an ambiguous story. He did so much good, you know, for Baylor and for Baptist. Um,
4: and uh, but you go on and you kind of get down to
2: the heart of your disappointment. And you write, our hearts are heavy
4: as we write what we know now uh, to be a more complete
2: truth about our family's past. And you ask your uncle a question uh, that could go out to so many Southern Baptists at that time, or, or this question could be asked Baptist in the civil rights era the 1960s. You ask, how could you have used the Bible to humiliate and to subjugate fellow human beings. How could you promote the lost cause, this concept of divinely inspired white nationalism? And you end your letter with an expression of your own intentions, which is you say, we pray it's not too late to make amends to our African-American brothers and sisters. So... I think it's just such a creative way to deal with kind of the disillusionment that one experiences when you learn this about uh, a founder or, in your case, uh, you know, a relative by uh, writing it out. How did you all come up with this idea? Uh, how did this letter come to be?
5: Most of the best ideas we have come from Blake. <laughs> I will say, I used to occasionally, about once a year, I'd write a, a a sermon. that was a letter from someone to Paul, and there's something freeing about it, mm-hmm. isn't there? And uh, I, so I thought it was a great idea uh, to to I don't know get a little distance mm-hmm. somehow. So we're not writing to Baylor people
3: necessarily, but we're but we're trying to speak to Baylor people. Yeah, and and uh, in some ways, ideally, Rufus would write back to us.
2: Yes, what would Rufus say?
3: Well, um, we, we don't know exactly where he is, so we don't know what post address he has. <laughs> well, so that would depend probably, you know. <laughs> so let's assume for a second, I'll go
5: on a theological limb here, at, uh, as we say in the, in the creed, in the life to come, there has to be, a, 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 you have to come to see all things clearly. Scriptures say we actually see Christ and therefore we are like Christ. So we we can't go on living uh, in in the next realm with the same illusions and the same sort of blind spots and the same lies we've been telling about ourselves to ourselves. And even when a person's growing, you know, they're missing stuff. Just like we've, we've been on a journey with all sorts of things Blake and I have, and yet we walk past that statue every day for decades almost without saying, I should go read his sermons. I'm the chaplain at Baylor, Mm -hmm. right? So we're all blind. So does he, does he awaken? And is there, is there a purifying kind of fire as I think Hebrews talks about? How is it that we move it into uh, salvation, This, this journey of glory to glory to glory? So I imagine those kinds of things. And if that's the case, he would have written us back and said, will you forgive me? Hmm.
3: Yeah, it, if we assume the, the, the optimistic side of things, that he's finding redemption somehow. But also it might be that he gives us some advice from that side. Like if you did it under the least of these, you did it under me. And, and he might even say, you know, Baylor is still in progress now. Mm-hmm. And, and you, as administrators, you need to remember that as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Almost a challenge.
2: Right. If redemption is complete and one can see the full picture from beyond the grave, then somebody like Rufus could give us some advice. Because I think we have no doubt that he loved Baylor. And wouldn't want Baylor to be in the right place doing the right thing now.
5: And the advice he would—he would probably just continue in that stream and say, "You—you you can bet that if you're a leader in an institution, you're missing something, and you may be even complicit in something. It's mm-hmm. going to really be embarrassing someday, or or cause you to need to." Repent and ask forgiveness. I mean, when is that not true in the life of a a community or a system or a a nation? When are you not in that place and it's so impossible to see it? Jesus was confronting that all the time, or at least trying to nudge people or thump them a little bit say, wake up.
2: Well, I love hearing you talk a little bit more about... um how you processed all this and you know to go back to your um the action you stated that you wanted to take in the letter which is to make amends and i feel like the first step as we know is is truth telling and i think you guys are are trying to help all of us understand these ambiguous truths that we've now fi- are finding out not just with rufus but other you know things in the university as we as we do what we should have done a long time ago which is look deeper and ask these important questions so um you both are leading us because you're you're dealing with your family but you're also giving us a good model at baylor uh and other places of, of what do we do with this information and i love your your exercise of writing a letter and, um, thinking about who I need to write letters to
5: and, um, Yeah. And maybe Rufus needs, to, needs to write back. We might, back. we might have to do I like that. Yeah. You know, one of the things I hope for, uh, that I, I think can happen at Baylor because we have a big tent Christianity, uh, though that can be frustrating at time, depending on what the issue is, and where you are in the conversation. But but it's real clear, and there's a lot of writing, there's some popular books having, you know, that have been written lately about the theological, uh, the lack of theological depth that led to this, the immaturity, particularly around what what is salvation, right? So so people could feel real good about baptizing their slaves because they get to go to heaven when they die, but they might lynch them, or they might. They might whip them that, that same afternoon after they went to the potluck supper at church or something like that. So there was this bifurcation that that was created by an inadequate or just a limited understanding of, of what it means to be in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. When you go back to the early centuries, they're, they're talking about wholeness. They're talking about becoming as Christ. He became what we are, that he makes... To make us what He is—that's that's what the vision is for the, for the from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And yet, it just became: do you do you believe the right doctrines? You get to go to heaven when you do. You're good to go, right? And and so we can treat these people however we need to treat these people. It won't matter. We'll just be nicer than all the other slaves and mm-hmm. slave owners. Their theology created the situation. Well, maybe. This is a time to really stretch the university for them to step into a a deeper, broader understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I went to preaching there.
2: No, I was just thinking you're the one as university chaplain, you can lead us. So uh, at uh, Good Faith Media, our tagline is, there's more to tell. So I'd like to end this by just asking you guys, what's your more to tell for us today?
3: Well, in, in learning about this, I'm not attempting to erase any history. I'm attempting to learn more about the history and how we, um, where, how we represent things on our campus is very important. And uh, I, I just uh, hope the Bader family will join the Burlesons as we as we explore this issue further.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it is, uh, it's this kind of humility uh, that we have to have in order to do what we do as an institution, and certainly as human beings and Christians. But to be able to say we hey, we don't know we all we're all, we're always a little bit short, and to be able to start there, Jesus says in John nine, uh, because you think you see, your blindness remains. So we gotta always gotta keep circling back to that place of. There's some chance I'm missing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. We need that kind of humility as an institution. Mm-hmm.
2: Amen. Well, thank you both for um, sharing with us today so openly. And thank you for for leading us at Baylor. Um, I know you love the university, and it's, it's that kind of love that's going to keep challenging us. Mm-hmm.
5: Thank you, Elaine. Thanks, Elaine. Good to be on a journey with you. <laughs> Until next week, keep living good faith.